the Manning Party of Canada. The Man... <laughs> That's what it used to be. There's our outtake. Yeah, who said conservatives can't be fun? Coming to you from the West Coast, this is our occasional Politico's Deep Dive. Every week we discuss what's happening in politics, and this is the episode where we get a bit more wonky and go a bit more into depth on one issue. I'm Ian. And I'm Scott. And this month, and we were originally going to do this monthly, but we've done one and now this is our second one, we're going to go into the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. And before we even get into that, we know that this weekend, while we're recording this on Friday night, the Manning Conference is happening as we're recording, but we probably won't put this out until Monday or Tuesday, so any sexy or funny issues that come out or complete campaign implosions, we're we're just not going to touch on those before this goes live. So let's get into... The discussion, and let's start with the focus on the candidates. And this is a really tough thing to do because if we wanted to give equal time to all 14 candidates, we could actually be spending two hours just talking about what the policy proposals are of all of these different people. And I mean, it could be interesting, but it's not necessarily worthwhile. So we sort of divided them into the also rands, the sort of second tier, but maybe has a good chance at coming in the back door to leadership and the sort of most noteworthy candidates. We pretty much agreed on who they were, right? Yes. So most of the people you have probably not heard of in the leadership race have been relegated to our also-ran list. So just to give a quick shout-out to each of them, but not discuss them in detail because we don't think there's anything particularly interesting about their candidacy and they're not likely to succeed... In the leadership race, none of them are polling particularly well or have interesting ideas they're really putting forward. Uh, so we'll just go over them quickly. Uh, first up is Tris Alexander. Uh, noteworthy is Canada's former ambassador to Afghanistan and former cabinet minister. Also noteworthy as the guy who at one rebel media rally sort of moved his hands along to a crowd shouting lock her up about Rachel Notley. Steve Blaney is... Another Quebec MP, he's running very hard on maintaining supply management, which is about as wonky as you can get as a conservative. And oddly passionate about it, which just seems a little weird, but more power to him. I guess everyone needs a pet issue. Next up is Pierre Lemieux, a 20-year member of the Canadian Forces, identifies as a social conservative, not a huge amount else to say about him. He's the guy who will purge political correctness from our government, if that's your kind of thing. Well, one of several. One of several. Deepak O'Brien, who's an Edmonton MP. He's a Tanzanian-born Canadian who looks pretty good in a cowboy hat, I guess. Which is apparently a requirement in Alberta politics. Also kind of running on the Be a Bitter, Broader Tent Conservative Party quite likes nuclear power, and making some kind of cheesy puns at his own expense. Next up, Rick Peterson, a businessman from Vancouver, not an elected politician, has some ideas about slashing taxes, but not a huge else really going for him. He's really the, I'm trying to raise my profile 
He got an actually really sympathetic piece in the Vancouver Sun, a nice big profile, but I'm not sure he'll get a vote outside BC. Potentially similar, Andrew Saxton, a former MP from North Vancouver, I believe, who lost his seat in the last election, also running for leader, but probably not going to get many votes outside the province. And finally, Brad Tross, who's kind of the standard bearer for the social conservatives, identifies as 100% conservative, whatever that means. Not a huge fan of the idea that climate change is happening, and is notable for always being slumped over whenever he's doing anything. But he'll always stand up for straight people. <laughs> he would. He's the guy who would bring back the same-sex marriage debate. He would bring back bans on abortion. And, and he would invoke the notwithstanding clause to do all of those things. So if that's your kind of thing, Brad Tross, your guy. He also notably pointed out with Kelly Leach's infamous Canadian values test for immigrants that he wouldn't pass it. So he did challenge her on that, so I'll give him But that was that. mostly because some of the Canadian values, like support of same-sex marriage, he wasn't a fan of. So he was more concerned to be on the wrong side of the values test. So those are the also-rans of the conservative leadership race. I don't think anyone's expecting them to pull in more than 5% of the initial ballot and are likely going to be knocked off in fairly quick succession uh, once we go into secondary rounds. The most important thing about them will be who is their second choice. And out of that first group, you have the sort of social conservatives of the Brad Tross, the Pierre Lemieux, the Chris Alexander, and maybe even the Blaney's. And then you have the O'Brien, Peterson, maybe the Saxton's as the red Tory side. And I say that with some question marks because these people have such low profiles, it's actually hard to figure out where they really do stand. But yes, as you're saying, there's the sort of next tier of people who aren't getting the most press, but they could be good consensus candidates, the kind of people who attract a lot of those second and third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth choices. But I don't think they're at the bottom of anyone's list. They just might not be at the top. So we have Andrew Shear, who's potentially one of the leaders of these three. He's current MP, former Speaker of the House, widely respected because you have to be to become Speaker, really playing the inoffensive try to build the big tent of the Conservative Party. Yeah, he's definitely following the strategy with a ranked ballot of not really doing anything to upset anyone, just kind of being there. He's gotten a lot of endorsements from other MPs, uh, which has helped raise his profile a bit. But he's very much running the go-for-everybody's third choice on the ballot strategy and hope that pushes... Uh, him up once the lower-ranked candidates start getting knocked out of the race. Uh, in terms of policies, doesn't have a huge amount going for him. Uh, it's in favor of more support for homeschooling, removing some of the restrictions on uh, foreign ownership of airlines, which uh, in theory would reduce the airfare that Canadians pay, which is fairly high. And also in favor of some firearms reforms, like a lot of the conservative field is. Uh, mostly tweaking some of the kind of 
nonsensical parts of the, our current firearms regulations, uh, spelling out a few more definitions in legislation, and what I'd argue is kind of moving towards a more common sense, function-based approach to firearms law. The homeschooling policy is a very interesting one for a federal politician to be taken. The federal government in Canada has always taken a very hands-off approach of education. It's a provincial issue, and they just leave it at that. Australia does have, for example, a similar setup where education is a state issue, but there is a national education policy. We don't have anything like that in Canada, even though the federal government could, they just have washed their hands of it. And so to have an education policy like that, but then to focus on homeschooling is really, to me, just a sort of signal, one of those little flags you put up of social conservatives, you know, the Brad Trost supporters. I, I, I see you. I see you, Brad Trost. Your, your guys are my guys. And that is the thing is Andrew Shears reportedly somewhat of a social conservative, but at the same time, following the Harper mold of this is a losing prospect for us. If, if we start fighting on these issues, you know, the conservatives aren't going to do well in upcoming elections. So he, at least as far as his leadership is, is going, he's very much going with a, this is not where we want to talk about. Let's not really talk about this. I'll send some signals that I kind of get where you guys are coming from, but it's not going to be a centerpiece of any legislative agenda or campaign. That'll be the token red meat thrown to the social conservatives. He would be the one to throw back funding to overseas abortions and things like that, potentially, but he wouldn't do it, touch it domestically, I bet. This whole crowd, essentially, this middle crowd, you could say, if you really like Stephen Harper, you really like these people. Like, none of the candidates are distancing, are actively distancing themselves from Stephen Harper. It's Stephen Harper with better branding is kind of their approach. And that's not hard <laughs> at this point. Uh, let's move into Aaron O'Toole, a MP from Ontario, a former cabinet minister as well, served in the Canadian Air Force prior to becoming a lawyer and MP. Uh, he's running a bit more on the security platform. If you go to his website, it's several sections there talking about defense policy, veterans issues. Uh, so he's kind of running a bit more on the foreign policy strong on defense. Uh, there's some interesting stuff in, in there. For example, the one that's really caught my eye is opening up uh, free trade and free movement area with the UK, Australia, New Zealand, which is an idea I've kind of liked for quite a while when I first heard about it several years ago, and he seems to have latched on. And that's I've kind of our middle tier candidates. So I'd say he's the one of the most interesting policy ideas, and that one probably being top of the list. Something I personally quite like as a policy, or at least as a goal to work towards, is you know, not going to be implemented anytime soon. These sorts of things are horribly complicated to negotiate. But, you know, a bunch of Commonwealth countries, similar levels of education, income, fairly culturally similar. If there's an open borders arrangement that could work, it's probably going to be these countries. In addition to that, it wants to expand the funding of the Canadian military, like a lot of these candidates are pledging to, though he's placed a little more front and center wants to hit the 2% uh, GDP target up from the 0.99% it is right now. And 
Also establish a new kind of cyber warfare unit, which after seeing some of the things that have happened in the past year with Russia increasing their hacking of various government and quasi-government organizations, I think there's a good case that an increased emphasis on this would be beneficial. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff I like in there. When I'm selecting who to rank on my values, probably going to be fairly high up for that reason. Doesn't seem to have a huge... I don't like his that like most of these, he's anti-carbon tats, but fairly inoffensive overall and some good ideas on the foreign policy and defense front. He's one of those ones who's having a lot of trouble distinguishing himself. It's a crowded field and to really make your name is tough and the ideas are interesting, I grant you that, and who doesn't like the idea of a nerd army, or at least out of people who podcast slash listen to podcasts, who doesn't like the idea of a nerd army. And the open borders idea is one that's tossed around. And it's one of those kind of things you can promise, but then not have to deliver on because it's immensely difficult and you require four different governments to sort of agree to it. But you can make noises about it and maybe push that way. And you're probably not going to have much success until Theresa May's out of office because it's unlikely they're going to Brexit into another open borders arrangement. So... Aaron O'Toole has got the interesting ideas, and I think we can find interesting ideas in them all, but it's just looking for him to jump out, and maybe he's just not got the media savvy that you know the candidates will get to. But let's talk about Lisa Raitt, who, before the race even started, when people were trying to dream up, oh, who will be the front runners? A lot of people were throwing her name around as one of the possible ones, but now she's sort of fallen into this middle pack and i'd even put her closer to the bottom of this middle pack because she's not really impressed anyone over the course of the leadership race to date maybe you feel differently and she's also not throwing many ideas out and that also doesn't really bring you up maybe she's hoping for a lot of fifth place ballots to win on that but you know the kind of thing she's talking about balanced budgets reducing size of government they're just the stock conservative lines. If you don't say them, you're not a conservative at this point. Yes, Lisa Raitt started out as one of the perceived frontrunners and a likely entrant into the leadership race. She was very well regarded with her handling of the transportation file as a cabinet minister in Stephen Harper's government. By all accounts, excellent administrator, would probably do fairly well in terms of the day-to-day job of actually governing a country. Likely would be fairly competent in the prime minister's office, but Getting there seems to be the big problem for her, and I think that's where her weaknesses are really shown, is she's just not that great a campaigner. She seems reasonably personable, but doesn't seem to be doing much beyond connecting kind of there and establishing a greater buy-in and interest and narrative. And it doesn't help that she used a little light on policy, and up until I googled what her policies were in preparation for this episode, I pretty much knew her as the cabinet minister from Cape Breton who happens to have a seat in Ontario. Well, and that's the one thing is she has emphasized that Cape Breton roots because there are so many candidates in here who are Ontario centric that she needs something to get votes outside of Ontario and saying, I'm from Cape Breton might get you a couple. She's one of the few candidates with any sort of connection east of Quebec and it's a riding-weighted system, so the Maritimes with their overrepresentative population in, in terms of ridings, you know, it, it can be useful, but I just 
I don't know, maybe it's just that it's not the sort of thing I vote on, but I just don't see it being, you know, that she grew up there and then, you know, left when she was a young adult is really going to drive a huge amount of people to vote for her. Well, and that brings us to the last four who are the most noteworthy, I guess. And in some ways you can put them as the top tier, but I wouldn't even necessarily say they're the most likely to win because of the way the race can work. I I think it's reasonable to say they've got the most attention of any candidate and all definitely pull in the upper half of the contenders. So they're unlikely to be eliminated early on. And we're putting them in our top tier because they either have interesting policy ideas or are noteworthy for some other way. So let's start with Maxime Bernier, who's really started to come out in the lead of this in his own way. He's as we'll talk about in a bit and when we get into fundraising numbers and polling numbers, is starting to really not run away with it, but pull himself ahead to a noticeable lead. Bernier is a Quebec MP who's always been a little bit of a unique brand of conservative. He's always identified as the sort of libertarian branch, and I'm sure hardcore libertarians would object to that because they're fundamentalist ideologues like communists or anything else and if you don't fit the exact orthodoxy you can't use the label but the policies he's putting forward talk about lots of privatization expanding free trade killing the cbc making guns easier to get those kind of things that make you a libertarian he's long been softer on drugs than other conservatives He's also not one who's planning to bring back discussions around abortion or same-sex marriage, consider those pretty much settled issues. And I think it's that kind of balance that makes a lot of progressives go, oh, he's not that bad. He's one who could be tolerable, unless you have problems with libertarians like I do. Maxine Bernie has been a bit of a tough candidate for me to evaluate, at least on the policy front, because... It always seems like it's one step forward, one step back with his ideas. I like a lot of the stuff he's saying. Freeing up uh, telecommunications and aviation to foreign investment and getting a little more competition into a rather stagnant markets in those sectors. Good ideas. And in supply management, which is wanty subject, hasn't gotten much interest in any of the other candidates except Steve Blaney's passionate defense of it. Eliminating corporate welfare, another thing that I quite like about him. We mentioned this when the Bombardier bailout was announced. Uh, he came out against it despite Bombardier being based in Quebec, and it's a pretty ballsy position for a Quebec politician to take. Like, all of those are good ideas. And I even think there's some merit to the idea of getting rid of the Canada health transfer and also cutting taxes by the same amount and letting the provinces... Uh, step in and fill that void both on the taxation and the spending front. With that, there's at least, a, I think, a decent argument to be made that when you split up the funding and the spending responsibilities, it's harder to find a single point of accountability and you get those two levels of government playing the blame the other guy game and it's harder for voters to hold them to account. So I, I can see there's an argument to be made there. I'm not entirely sold on that position, but it's one that's piqued my interest and I can in theory, see myself supporting if I'm sold on it a little more. He has some decent ideas, I think, and there's a fair bit in there to like. And for the most part, he's actually running a a fairly smart libertarian-esque campaign in the sense that almost all of these are, this is how the government makes your life more expensive. 
which is probably the better way to go than, you know, no government, you know, market solve everything, which the more doctrinaire libertarians would be going for. But at the same time, there's some stuff I'm just not sold on. Like the airports, thing, for example, I'm just having a hard time seeing the benefits of it. Europe has some private airports, and they seem to work fairly well, but at the same time, is there a huge amount of gains to be made there? Privatization is something that can work well when there's a potential for a competitive market in there. The one I always like to bring up is like the LCBO, for example, the Ontario Liquor uh, Monopoly that's run by the government there. That's the sort of thing where it's a retail outlet. Those That's like the perfect thing to privatize because there's a effective market there, there's competition, like... You can get better prices, better service with the market competition there. Airports, though, there's one, maybe two in each city. You know, are you not going to fly to Toronto because of, you know, slightly difference in airport fees or something? Like, it's just not the sort of thing I can see really helping out that much on making anything better. And there just isn't a solid case there, as far as I can tell, for privatization. And he's also said some kind of weird things in the past about uh, the gold standard, which he's since downplayed a bit, but... Well, and that's just one of those flags for, like, libertarian conspiracies, and you almost wonder if he's going to start talking about being a freeman on the land and the maritime law not applying, <laughs> but... Uh, he, he thankfully hasn't gotten that nutty, but there's definitely some nutty stuff in there. And, you know, there's a reason we moved away from the gold standard, because it's just not a great way to go about it. Also, like, abolishing capital gains taxes, I'm not really sold on. So, that's the thing about him. Every time he makes a policy announcement, it's either, you know, that's actually a great idea, we should do it, or it's a, yeah, well, that's just cancelled out the goodwill the last policy announcement made. Well, and that's part of the problem with any strict ideologues, is they tend to double down on the ideology rather than maybe consider the balance on each question as it comes up. But Maxime Bernier has actually been in cabinet, and his record's not the cleanest while it was there. And we've talked about it before, but he was the guy who left classified documents in his Hell Angels-affiliated girlfriend's house. And that doesn't seem to be coming up. And maybe everyone's just forgotten or doesn't care anymore. I think part of it, too, is just it's a crowded field, and you know, right now everybody's focused on on Kevin O'Leary, which we'll get to in a minute, but it doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that people have really latched onto, which is kind of a little weird, because part of the point of a leadership process is to have kind of that initial vetting before a general election, and, you know, we just saw an election last year with a candidate having issues surrounding handling of classified documents be a weight around their neck for an entire campaign, and, you know, I'm, the liberal war room has, probably has an ad prepared on this issue right now. Or at least the strip written to roll out should uh, Bernier become the leader. Well, and he's got a good chance of taking this thing at this point. Not a guarantee by any stretch, but if I was putting my money down, he'd be one I'd strongly consider. Yeah, and we haven't talked much about the structure of the vote yet, but we have mentioned on previous episodes, and it's a writing-weighted vote. So every writing gets 100 points, and it's him and Blaney in the 25% of writings 
that are in Quebec as kind of the obvious regional front runners. And there's a reason we put Blaney in the also ran. Like most of those votes are probably going to be going to Bernier. So that puts him at a fairly good starting position before we even get into the other regions of the country. That combined with his decent poll numbers, it's probably going to put him at a good shot of winning this. So next up in our front runners is somewhat disappointingly Kelly Leach, the anti-elite former cabinet minister with 22 or 18, depending on who's counting, letters after her name, as she was very insistent on pointing out. She's, before this leadership race, perhaps most famous for being on stage with Stephen Harper when they announced the Barbaric Cultural Practices Hotline. And since that kind of stuck with her, she's doubled down on it in some, in probably the worst possible way, and very much playing on the sorts of fears of immigrants, people who don't fit the old stock Canadian mold. So she had a sort of tearful apology after the election and felt like and she sort of apologized in a way for the barbaric cultural practices hotline during the election and didn't think it was the right thing to propose, but then sort of swung hard and leaned hard into this Canadian values test for immigrants. And that's what vaulted her into this sort of front runner race because the media just ate it up. They said, oh, she's controversial. She's saying controversial things. And they sort of looked south and they saw Trump saying controversial things. And they saw her saying controversial things and saying the same sort of controversial things. And anytime anyone questioned her on, well, what would that test look like? She said, you're, you're distracting from the with specifics. I'm talking about the broad thing. And there was this emphasis on not talking about what the actual test would look like and what values are Canadian values. And as we pointed out, Brad Dross wouldn't fit some of the potential Canadian values that she's hinted at. So this strategy she developed with her former strategist, Nick Cavallis, who resigned in disgrace. Let's just say that. You can listen to our past episode where we briefly touched on that. So their strategy has been on this, let's talk about how this flood of immigrants that are coming in and that they're not Canadian enough. And it is really playing on those dark fears of people who aren't white enough or aren't Canadian enough. And that is a significant constituent of the Conservative Party, at least enough to get her notoriety. Beyond that, her policies sort of fall in the range of the rest of the candidates. She'd move towards dismantling the CBC as well, capping spending, citizen-initiated referendums, and those kind of stock conservative things. But she's really known for this attack on immigrants. So for her, this has meant it's a very polarizing position she's taken. A lot of people are now putting her in the sort of last place. Like, they'll either have her as first, maybe second, or else she's last. And so her path to victory gets both easier and harder as she gets more controversial because she attracts more name recognition, which brings more people into the party to support her, but then also pushes a lot of the sort of red Tories and people who are in the party are more sympathetic to immigration or or welcoming to it, start putting her right at the bottom and finding an anyone-but-leech candidate. And not only that, she may bring a few supporters into the party, but she also might be bringing a few people who really don't like her into the party and want to see her 
absolutely go nowhere near the leadership or the PMO. A couple of people we know who aren't the sort of typical conservative party voters have joined in part because they really don't like this sort of politics creeping up into Canada. And that's the thing is, there's only 90,000 members or so when the, when the leadership contest started. And in a country of 35 million, that's a lot of potential people you can bring in to stop her. And her polarizingness has definitely brought a few people into in for that reason. And it's also a ranked ballot. And as you were talking about, that is that sort of polarizing way to go is a very terrible thing to do, especially if it's a field this big. In a three-person ranked ballot, it actually might work where you can push yourself over that 50% and not go into a runoff. But in this case, I think it's going to be a hard path to victory to push it up over that 50%, even with a couple runoffs. She's basically relying on the rebel media constituency. And it's such a dangerous game to be playing just whipping up that fear and that hatred and that anger and not really providing actual tangible policy solutions. It's one thing to talk about, oh, are, is Canada legitimately bringing in too many immigrants? Is that affecting jobs? It's another to just sort of say it, but then be like, the immigrants who are coming don't fit in. We should test them with a vague test. And when someone goes, oh, what, what does that test look like? How would that test work? And go, well, I don't, I don't need to answer that. It's playing to fears without actually providing policy solutions. So I'll give credit to almost, almost, and we'll get to the last one, every other candidate for providing a lot more detail and thinking through these things. But she's clearly just trying to play to fear. And just like I don't want to see an NDP candidate running on the far socialist tax the 1%. Seize the means of production. Yeah, and not even in a communist way, but in just a, like, demonize the rich because they're rich. Like, let's present some policy solutions and actually think through things. I want to see smarter policy, and Kelly Leach is not bringing us there. And that's the thing. She's very much a smart person. The number of letters after her name is one indication of, albeit an imperfect one of that, and she's an orthopedic surgeon. She's worked in the healthcare sector, and I'm looking at her website right now. There isn't a section on there for healthcare. She's missed like, the, one of the areas she has direct experience with and solid credibility on, and instead playing this populist, anti-elite sentiment, which... You know, can maybe work if you're Rob Ford, but I'm part of this is I'm just puzzled on who is buying it. Like, she is one of the most elite people out there. With a CV like hers, it's hard to play up the anti-elite aspect, and it just seems so transparent to me. I'm I'm personally having a hard time understanding why people are going for that. Well, I think people weren't that familiar with her, so they don't look into the CV just as. In the States, people don't look deep into Trump's history. They just go, well, yeah, he's got this past, but he's saying the right things and he'll drain the swamp and fix Washington or at least upset the system and throw the elites out, burn the system down, as it were. And I don't think she would do that. She would definitely almost play into the system even more, but that's not the message she's selling, so... You can just play a message without 
following through on the actions, yeah, as, as we've seen to the south. As he really is aping the uh, style and rhetoric of Donald Trump. In fact, she referred to draining the canal, referencing the Rideau Canal. Of course, apparently she didn't realize that if you drain a canal, the canal stops working. You also can't skate on it, but climate change is solving that as well. So yeah, overall, I think with one other possible exception, which we'll be talking about shortly, I think she kind of represents the worst aspects that have emerged in this leadership race. The sort of playing to people's base fears, the, kind of, the, you know, the worst in us, so to speak. And it's just not where I'd like to see the Conservative Party go. It's not where I, most Canadians want to see the country go. And it's just kind of depressing and a little terrifying to see someone in such a position latch onto these issues for kind of pure self-gain. Because I'm not sure if she really believes it, but it seems to me she'd be willing to go along with it if it got her a little bit more ahead in the political game. Well, if I was worried about Kelly Leach winning the leadership a few months ago, I am much less worried about that now that someone even more bombastic and even more willing to say any absurd thing that crosses his mind has entered the race, and that's Kevin O'Leary. If there's one thing I will thank him for, it's for effectively marginalizing Kelly Leach's campaign with an even more ridiculous campaign, because he's not an elected politician. He's a businessman who mostly lives out of Canada, who decided he wants to be conservative leader in much the same way as Donald Trump decided he wanted to be Republican leader. And so naturally, all of the media is latching on to the analogies even more with him than they did with Leach, because as you say, Leach was as establishment as you can get and as elite as you can get almost within the Conservative Party, whereas Kevin O'Leary is the outsider. He's He could have arguably been a liberal at times, except he's a bit more pro-business. In fact, he has donated to liberal candidates in the past. There's definitely that Bay Street wing of the Liberal Party, which, if anything, strikes me as he'd be more at home with than the Conservative Party. For all the Trump comparisons, and there are many that are accurate, the one area he departs significantly from Trump on is he's less likely to claim that kind of alt-right identity politics aspect. If it wasn't for the uh, Trump comparison, he'd probably be like one of the reddest of the red Tories in the slate here. And like one of the few positive things I'm going to say about him, because I'm going to say a lot of negative things right after this, is that you know, he's actually pretty good on a lot of those social issues in, in terms of LGBT rights, abortion, all that stuff. And it's actually quite a bit left, I think, of any of the other candidates on that stuff. I want to pick up on that. I strongly agree with that. I mean, a lot of people I've seen have joined the Conservative Party to do the anyone but Kel- or anyone but O'Leary and Leach. But they see his sort of style and assume he is literally Trump of Canada. But as you're saying... He's not going to play to the social conservative base. He doesn't seem to have any desire to do so. And maybe it's a bit smarter strategy than some of the other conservatives who are more ideologically committed or personally committed to uh, anti-choice positions or anti-LGBT positions. But Kevin O'Leary is just about running government as a business. And I disagree with that 
on a sort of way, I sort of disagree with Maxime Bernier's shrink government until I can drown it kind of philosophy. But I'm actually personally much less worried about a Kevin O'Leary run conservative party than I am about a Leach or a Pierre Lemieux style one, or even maybe an Andrew Scheer who would put those sort of social conservative issues in there. I don't like the style at all because it is that sort of bombastic and there's no policy there to actually critique or to know what he's going to do besides maybe his talk about selling Senate seats, which is fucking ridiculous. And we can make fun of every little policy thing he comes out with, but he doesn't scare me as much as maybe I should be. I don't think he'd be as terrifying as leader of the conservative party. The bigger problem I have is the job that that leads up to. He he might even be an okay leader of the opposition in terms of really trying to hold the government to account and really, you know, fighting it out on a bunch of those issues. But the thing is, in a couple of years, we're going to have an election. And if Kevin O'Leary is leader of the Conservative Party, he's going to be prime minister shortly after that, uh, if he can succeed at that. And that is fucking terrifying because, well, Kelly Leach has endorsed some rather horrible policies, she at least seems to have an idea of what government does and how it functions and isn't just going to wildly careen off in all directions and make a complete mess of it. And that is, I think, where Kevin O'Leary moves into the terrifying idea, is that he just seems so profoundly ignorant of all things related to this job. Uh, he came to Vancouver a couple weeks back, and I, out of curiosity, went to listen to him speak, and I was actually shocked at just how little he knew about Canadian politics. He talked about looking for Stephen Harper's name on the ballot in downtown Toronto. Like, when he was talking to his son about, hey, when you go in there and see Stephen Harper's name on the ballot, you know, you should vote for him and whatnot, and he didn't even know how the ballots are going to be structured like two years ago. And didn't even think enough that this was a point worth correcting when he was talking about it right now. And just a complete lack of knowledge on how the Senate works. Like, you can't just sell a Senate seat or the structure of Canadian federalism. You know, he was talking about all sorts of policies that were not the prime minister's or the federal government's job at all. And he, that's the thing where I think it's really concerning that he's gotten this far is he just doesn't not have experience in politics, he is so out of his depth that actually what it would take to run a country effectively, you know, it could be a disaster. Looking down south, we there were some bad ideas put forward and policies that we both strongly disagree with, but a big part of what's gone wrong there too is just how crazy and inept everything's been too. And that sort of thing would be coming up here as well. You know, he might not intentionally set everything ablaze, but, you know, there's a good chance there's going to be a tire fire nonetheless. He'd definitely bring in a level of corruption. I have no doubt about that. I've... And his talk about banning unions and some of the other crazy things he's said in the past probably couldn't come about under the way our government's structured. And while our PMO has been increasingly powerful and we've gotten more and more centralization of power in the prime minister's office, he's still accountable to at least his party. And it's not like he'll inherit a conservative party full of Kevin O'Leary's. There will be a lot of people very skeptical of him. I don't know that he has many MPs endorsing him. 
or senators. So he'll have to find a way to balance that. And the way I could see that working in a traditional sense would be he relies on them to do all the stuff he doesn't give a shit about, which is probably most of governing, in which case you'd get an establishment conservative party led by an asshole, but sort of running the course, maybe saying stupid shit all the time, but the policies would mostly stay where the conservative party would go. It'd be an embarrassment to have him as a prime minister, no doubt, but I would feel better having him than Trump. But that's not saying anything. That, that's because he only has one of the two fatal flaws of Trump. But touching on your point about a typical conservative party member, that's the thing that's actually struck me as the most odd. Well, one of the things that most odd about this is that some of his policies really aren't that conservative. He very much seems to be more of that Bay Street uh, liberal, especially on his policies surrounding uh, corporate welfare and the like. Like his big problem with the Bombardier bailout wasn't that, you know, the government is interfering in the markets or propping up the losers and creating moral hazard, you know, all the kind of traditional conservative objections, that sort of policy. It was that, you know, we didn't get the sweet enough deal. And it's listening to him talk, it's very much that sort of, you know, I don't care about how the overall system is structured. It's much more about how to tweak each little thing here and there and get the best deal, even if it makes a completely incoherent mess. And that is basically kind of the opposite of the conservative philosophy on this stuff. When conservative intellectualism is at its best, it's very much focused on kind of what is that broad system level approach? How do we get a structure on which all of these other interactions place? And how do we get the system structure right? And this is, if anything, the exact opposite and focusing more on trying to achieve individual outcomes uh, rather than the... How do we structure a fair system that produces the best net result? And, and that's the thing that just that combined with his social liberalism, which, you know, I'm, I applaud him for. But that just creates a weird thing where he just doesn't seem to be a conservative. And that's just odd to me that he's gotten so much traction when someone else we're going to speak about shortly gets flack for running a basically a fairly by-the-book center-right campaign, but gets flack for being too liberal. It's just weird to me. Well, Leary's going to continue to attract all kinds of attention and controversy. He's also not fluent at all in French, and we didn't touch on all the other candidates who aren't. He's not the only one. He said he's trying to learn, but I'll believe it when I see it. I think he can probably speak as much French as I can right now, and that's not saying much. So it'll be interesting to see if he can win the Conservative Party leadership not speaking one of the official languages of this country, and how well that goes over in rural Quebec. He basically ruled out 25% of the vote right there. He's might pick up a few people in kind of Montreal, but for the most part... He's starting with basically a quarter of the country he can't com effectively compete in. And that's going to be hard to make up for. And also, he's starting a little late. He hasn't built that campaign infrastructure. This phase of the campaign, while membership is still open, a huge part of it's about selling memberships. And, you know, he's months behind on that, too. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how he goes and whether or not he is, his bombasticness is going to hurt him on the ranked 
valid or whether that name recognition will put him above somebody you've never heard of. Yeah, and in terms of paths to victory, he really needs that early ballot support because he's another polarizing figure who's starting to attract a lot of negatives and a lot of anyone but O'Leary's. And that means he probably doesn't have a lot of second and third place support. So he needs those first ballots to really get him close so that he can just nudge over. And it'll be interesting to see if he can make that happen, but might be just too much for Canada. And that would maybe give me some faith in this country again. Yeah, I certainly am hoping he doesn't do very well in this. And also, I'm a little curious on where some of the Conservative Party members are at this, because he has several knots against him in a general election, too, which we briefly hinted at, but haven't really discussed his comments about union. the unions and so many other things like that that are, you know, on tape from his many years on TV. Uh, he's has said he's not even willing to move back to Canada full time if he wins the leadership race. He wants to continue to live in Boston and campaign in Canada for the next couple of years, but he's not going to seek a seat prior to 2019. He's not uh, going to move to Canada. And frankly, it's bizarre that two elections after the Conservatives ran a very effective campaign against somebody who, you know, actually came back, actually sought a seat, and actually served in Parliament for several years prior to gaining the leadership and effectively demolished that candidate and by extension ushered in the worst liberal loss in history. It's just bizarre that conservatives are even considering someone who has those knots against him and a whole bunch more right after they just wrote the playbook on how to fight that sort of candidate. But sadly, as this last year has shown, you can't really count on anything. So it really is going to be a matter of how, of how the votes turn out and who knows where it's, we're going to go from here if O'Leary actually wins. And our final candidate is Michael Chong, uh, an MP from Ontario, former cabinet minister for a brief period. He resigned his position over a matter of disagreement with Stephen Harper. He's noteworthy in that he's put forward a lot of quite interesting policy proposals that are a little more outside of where the rest of the party is. While he does have a lot of the you know traditional conservative approaches to some stuff, he's introduced a lot of policies that the conservatives haven't really looked at seriously before. He's championing democratic reform. In fact, that's where he's perhaps most notable for is in the last term uh, before the previous election. He pushed through the Reform Act, which unfortunately got neutered somewhat. But the basic idea was the party leadership has too much power and the MPs are effectively empty suits that basically do as the party leader tells them and don't effectively represent their constituents. And he put forward an act that would greatly increase the relative power of the MPs compared to the prime minister or party leaders. And that's part of his platform again now, but platform that's to implement basically the full reform act in its original state where party leaders are much more accountable to their MPs, which, you know, if Kevin O'Leary gets in, well, would be great if actually was already on the books, but sadly isn't as well as some like committee memberships, with a secret ballot rather than the current day the leader chooses. And, you know, if you do anything the leader doesn't want, well, there goes your nice committee position. 
And perhaps the other really notable policy is he's the only candidate to advocate for a carbon price. Uh, we've talked about carbon pricing quite a bit on previous episodes, but it would be the by-the-book, center-right, economic conservative, this-is-how-you-deal-with-climate-change policy, revenue-neutral, so it doesn't become a huge cash grab. The net taxation effect is the same, but it introduces a strong incentive to reduce carbon emissions. So he's championing that. He basically refers to our BC model as kind of the one he wants to bring to the rest of Canada, although with a significantly more aggressive price, which has definitely kind of put him offside some of the other candidates and being a bit of a point of contention with a fair number of the Conservative Party members. And his other kind of big policy proposal is privatize CMHC. The argument behind that is... That the, that the government backing of mortgages by the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation basically has a huge market distorting effect where debt for mortgages is artificially cheap and that is crowding out other sources of credit in the economy. So small and medium sized business, businesses can't access the credit because that's being all consumed by the housing sector, which is also having the effect of pushing up housing prices. We've talked about this before. It's, I think our conclusion was it's kind of an interesting and wanty proposal, but it's maybe not the most effective one to solve this. But at the same time, housing's much more of a local issue, and there's only so much a prime minister can do on the file. Yeah, Chong's absolutely the candidate that anyone left at all of the traditional conservative party of the last 10 years, like even a centrist, if you take any kind of quiz to be like, which Conservative Party candidate should I vote for? You get Chong. Like, he's the only candidate who came out in support of this anti-Islamophobia motion, and he's directly attacked the other candidates who would push hate forward, and he wants to see that kind of rhetoric rolled back. To her credit, Lisa Raitt has also launched a anyone but O'Leary campaign, but to much less success because it seems less authentic. Chong genuinely seems like the guy who wants to see a wonkier red Tory type of policy. Like if the progressive conservative party existed in name still, that would be him. So he's the sort of oddball candidate here. His sort of path to victory really relies on all of the people who are signing up to oppose O'Leary or Leach or literally anyone else going, all right, who's who's the least offense? Oh, he, he's okay. I kind of like some of those things. I don't give him a blanket endorsement because he's still a conservative and that's not my approach. He would still seek to cut taxes where I think they're okay. He takes that kind of approach. That doesn't mean I don't want him to win. I think he's the best of this bunch. But at the same time, he is a sort of standout. And I really do wonder when he doesn't win, because his path to victory is very small. Will he still be with the Conservative Party? Because it seems like the rest of the party is leaving him. It's not that he's not a Conservative. It's that the Conservatives are mostly going in this rebel media, sort of nationalistic kind of way, at least big parts of it. And it'll be tough for him. So people are saying, why aren't you just with the Liberal Party? And if he crosses the floor, it won't be because he's not a conservative anymore, but it'll be because the Liberals 
sort of found that centrist space that they can occupy, and the Conservative Party found a new space that scares me. Yeah, that's the thing. If, if it does happen, it will be because the Conservative Party leaves him, not the other way around. But it, it is a little weird. I think the area he gets the most flat for is the carbon pricing thing, but that really is, like, the economic conservative approach to carbon pricing. Everyone else's policies on this, if they have them beyond just ignore the problem and hope it goes away, or pretend it isn't a problem, has all been much more of a, we're going to, you know, regulate away the problem, which is just the opposite of what a conservative approach should be. Stephen Harper talked about a sector-by-sector sector regulatory approach, which that's the position the NDP would normally take. And it's just a little weird that you have a policy that's, you know, been endorsed by Preston Manning, whose, you know, conservative bona fides are pretty well established and, and whatnot, that this is a as controversial a position as it is within the party. And, and the other thing is the issue surrounding the more socially divisive parts of what some of the conservatives are saying. Part of it is I don't think Michael Chan has any real interest in these issues in general, so he's never really engaged with them in the way that other conservative party members do. So he doesn't want to touch abortion or any of the other stuff just because it's not an important issue to him. And he also sees it as a, this is something that the Conservative Party will lose on if we, if the Conservative Party goes with it in the next election. Conservatives typically win when they talk about the economy and lose when they talk about social issues. And I think of these candidates, of these 14 candidates, Michael Chong seems to be the only one who realizes that the game doesn't end on May 27th. It's only the start of round two then, where he then has to fight face off against the Liberals. And... Everyone else seems to be either so unnoteworthy they aren't making much of a fuss or are laying the groundwork for a liberal attack on them. The Islamophobia motion we talked about last week, that was such an obvious way to ensnare the conservatives into taking a unpopular position on this issue that would cost them with moderates. And, you know, he was the only one who seemed to realize that, yeah, this isn't what we should be doing and avoided that trap, and everybody else seemed to not only not recognize the trap, but run towards it with glee. And trip over each other, trying to condemn it fastest and loudest. Chong's big challenge, though, I think, is trying to be more than just the progressive wing of the Conservative Party. He's got that locked up, I think, but I don't know that that'll be enough to win this leadership for him. That's not to say he should swing wide right, I prefer where he is to any of the others, but I'm much left of them. But I don't see his path to victory without, say, the people who would support Lisa Raitt or Aaron O'Toole, or even the people who would support Andrew Scheer if he was just kept at the same level on the social conservative issues. I'm glad to see him trying to drag the Conservative Party sort of into the last decade when they needed to have started to acknowledge climate change and some of these issues. But it seems like with 13 other candidates, who none of which are really taking his positions, that it's an uphill and losing battle for him. It's definitely probably the tightest path to victory of any of the top tier candidates we've mentioned. 
it's going to require a high amount of membership sales and really target in which ridings to really focus on. He's going to do fairly well in the GTA, probably going to do quite well in BC. Other places a little less so, but Montreal can probably pick up quite a decent number of votes, decent number of votes in the Maritimes. So there are ridings that can be won, especially the ones that conservatives haven't typically held and, you know, don't have a huge amount of conservative members right now. Those can, in theory, be picked up fairly easily because they're probably going to be ridings that are more open to his message than an Alberta riding just outside of Fort Mac where, you know, there's... 10,000 conservative members and none of them like a carbon tats. So that's going to be, I think, his best path to victory. And in terms of second choice votes, it's probably going to pick up almost all of Oberai's. But, you know, that's not a huge number right there. Might do okay on the Peterson and Satson votes. And I think we'll do well picking up kind of the O'Toole's rates and maybe a couple shares if Sheer gets knocked out early. But yeah, it's definitely a narrower path to victory, and I think much more focused on kind of the new party members than anything else. But I also think he is the candidate that really does kind of exemplify where the conservatives need to go. He is facing a bit of an uphill battle in this one, but he might be the ideal person to lead the conservatives in 2029 or something. Like, it's probably where the Conservative Party will eventually go if it doesn't implode into this kind of further right, more nationalistic approach that some of the other candidates are trying to push for. Well, and that's one thing that's really interesting about this race is almost all of these candidates are young enough that they could run next time. They could run in 2019, 2020, after the next election, if the Conservatives do really badly and then burn through a leader and say... But what about one of those other guys? It's mostly guys or two women. Maybe one of them will come back and maybe that's when it'll be Chong's time. But I'm pretty skeptical that he could win it this time. I think it's worth the time we've spent on him because he's interesting and he has a unique approach to this. And we're sort of both hoping he wins, but I don't think it's going to happen. His chances of victory are lower than I'd like, that's for sure. But I, I really do hope he succeeds at this because like I said I think he does go in the direction the conservative party needs to go and I want an electorally viable conservative party and I want a conservative party that can talk about some of the issues I care about without having to get into the other stuff that really pushes me away from them I care about balanced budgets and economic competitiveness a well-funded military like these are all issues that are actually important to me and I you know, I want to be able to go to the ballot box and support if I feel like they're not getting enough attention from one of the other parties. And I absolutely hate it when I have to try and make a choice between supporting those things and also supporting a candidate who holds views I really don't agree with on climate science, on minority rights, and all these other issues. And the liberals aren't exactly doing stellar on any of those the ndp you know i can't see any of them ever arguing the defense budget is too low or placing a high emphasis on you know a 
long-term fiscal sustainability. And I don't know, it's, it's depressing that we may be going into yet another couple cycles where that trade-off has to be made. And there isn't a clear party that puts out those center-right economic policies that I can, in some circumstances, be rather favorable towards. And without going into all of these other divisive and socially regressive stances. And I hope Michael Chon wins, or if he doesn't, at least whoever does, moves, continues to move in that direction. Next, let's move into a little bit of data just quickly to try to figure out how close our predictions of what the state of the race are to reality. iPolitics actually has an interesting poll on this, and polling on leadership races needs to be taken with like a box of salt. Just dump it all over yourself because it's usually garbage and useless because... As you said, there's maybe 90,000 people in the Conservative Party distributed sporadically around the country. And to find them and to get a balanced sample that represents the unique weighting that they're doing, you'd have to call up about a million people, maybe. And even then, you're still relying on people to honestly tell you they're Conservative Party voters. What iPolitics has partnered with Main Street Research to do is run a really interesting ongoing polling of the leadership race, but Main Street found the database, the publicly available records of the people who've donated to the Conservative Party. And they're from that list, they're taking subsets and calling about 2,000 at a time and saying, are you a current Conservative member and do you plan to vote in this upcoming leadership race? And using that to start to handicap the race. And when they do that, what they found most recently, and this was just a couple days ago, that Kevin O'Leary is in first. Not really that surprising. He's got 21% support. Kelly Leach has about 16%. Maxime Bernier has 15%. As we sort of discussed, they're in the top three. Andrew Scheer has up to 10%. And then it's sort of undecided at 7 Lisa Raid at 65 Michael Chong at... 5.7%, and then the rest are all under 5%. The bottom three out of interest are Peterson, Trost, and Saxton. So BC is not doing that well. But this is pretty interesting because they ask, you know, who's your first choice? Who's your second choice? Who's your third choice? We don't have access to those latter two because we don't have the $150 a month subscription that it would take to view this data. If anyone wants to sponsor us to view that you can find our email at politicos.ca. But what they have released is who's ranked last by the most people. And that's also Kevin O'Leary, where 24% of people ranked him last. But among the decided voters, 33%. So one in three people who've made up their mind really don't want Kevin O'Leary in there. And 19% of decided voters put Kelly Leach last. So those two are in this very polarized situation just like we talked about. And that makes it really tough to find their path to victory. They still have a lot of room to play with the numbers in there. And so it's really still anyone's game based on just that. This is certainly an interesting poll. And it does show that the race is still fairly wide open, especially with this many candidates. 
you know, you're not going to see anyone hit that 50% number at any point in the polling leading up to it. And there's been some other polling that's usually pegs, you know, the top couple people. Bernier consistently comes out fairly high, as well as Leach. Especially, I think, one of Chon's lower polls, which I think might indicate there's maybe a people who already had a Conservative Party membership are less likely to vote, but the people who are coming in might not. Like, it's interesting to see how it plays out, but the data is very noisy on this one, and there's going to be a lot of membership sales happening. Like I said, there was about 90,000 or so when the race started. They're expecting the number's going to be 130,000, 150,000 uh, when membership sales close on March 28th. So... It's only capturing a section of them. It's only capturing the people who donated. And one of the attempts to get a picture of the race based off donations that uh, came out a little while ago showed that Bernie also does fairly well. But once again, those are kind of the, you know, who cares enough to really donate. And it's hard to get a picture of the race, especially with this rather complicated modeling you have to do with uh, ranked preferences and then weighed it by writings and there are writings around you know here that have less than a hundred members current right now so it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out on that and it's an interesting snapshot but i don't think anyone should put too much weight in any poll or any series of polls on the matter the one thing i did find really interesting about the fundraising data that came out a couple weeks ago about which was just about the last quarter of 2016. So this was before Kevin O'Leary was even in the race. But Eric Grenier did manage to go through that and look at what people had donated to multiple candidates. And when you start to do that analysis, you can start to think about who's the second choice and who has the strongest path to victory. Because it's very likely that if you donate to someone you're probably going to put them very high on your ballot. And when you do that, Maxime Bernier actually has a lot of support from a lot of other candidates. He's actually got the most sort of overlap. Like 39% of the people who donated to more than just Kelly Leach also donated to Bernier. He's sort of leads that metric with Steve Blaney, Michael Chong, Aaron O'Toole, Andrew Shear, Lisa Raitt. So Bernier's managed to make this sort of position where he might almost be both the front runner and a compromise candidate for a lot of others. And that becomes a very effective path to victory. Whereas someone like Michael Chong, his second choices are coming from Andrew Saxton and maybe Bernier, but Bernier would have to get knocked off the ballot for those votes to go to Chong. That's unlikely. And that's probably not going to happen. So his path closes down. Kelly Leach, meanwhile, has a few second choices scattered around with support from some of the Bernier fans, some of the Chris Alexander fans, unsurprisingly, as well as sort of third maybe choices with the O'Toole's and Rates in the middle and with Steve Blaney. And surprisingly, even Michael Chong, 18% of the people who donated to Chong and more than one other person also donated to Kelly Leach. Which does seem odd, considering they're about as polar opposite as you can get in this race. Maybe there's just a subset of conservative donors who are like, 
I like everyone, and I want to see everyone do the best, and they just give money everywhere. Well, the the other thing is they're both from the same part of the country, just slightly outside of Toronto. So it's, in theory, they might be coming through kind of the same local fundraising circuits and getting money that way. And to be fair, you don't see any overlap between the Chong and Brad Trost camp. But so overall, it's a really tough race to try to get a sense of where everyone's at. We can figure out who's in the lead, but that doesn't mean anything when anyone can sort of come up from behind. So this could very easily be Andrew Shear's race, even though no one's really watching him because he just becomes the de facto second choice for everyone or fourth choice for everyone, and all those others cancel out. Yeah, I think he's definitely the one to watch for in terms of snagging a lot of those choice foes and being a compromise candidate. Although Bernier does that job fairly well too, so it's going to be interesting to see um, just based off these numbers. Bernier, I think, is the most likely to win, but it's really hard to say at this point, especially because we have no idea about what the membership sales are going to be. And that's where it's, I think, really going to be interesting on the membership sales is who can bring in the most people. The party had more than 300,000 members when Stephen Harper got elected, and the fact that it's down to 90,000 means there's quite a few that can be brought back in. We'll see how many come in that way, and it kind of depends why they left, too. Were they unhappy that Stephen Harper wasn't banging the social conservative drum the way they want? You know, there, there might be a flood of people coming in to support Brad Trost. If he didn't like the direction the party took after the merger and were more kind of the red Tory progressive conservative side and that and those people have all are the ones who all left, you know, that that could bode well for your rights, chons and no tools. It's really hard to say at this moment. And then of course we have the who was never a member that gets brought in here and you know, I don't think there's a huge amount of accessible people that are you know going to be rushing to get a party membership because they really like Andrew Shear. If you really like Andrew Shear, you're probably already a member to start with. It's going to be the ones who kind of have a more untraditional side that may be able to bring more people in. Uh, I think Michael Chan will do fairly well on that kind of scooping kind of anyone in the kind of progressive, conservative, centrist flank on even to maybe a little on the center-left side if, you know, people really like his environmental message or something. You could see he has probably a wider range of accessible potential members to go after. How effective that conversion is going to be is another question, and That's the thing. There's just so many unknowns in the model, and we really can't tell at this moment. Well, on that idea of growing the vote and potentially even playing into the Chong camp, I guess, one of the things I think we want to discuss here, because we can potentially take opposite sides on this and make it a mini debate to close off this episode, is this question of should centrist progressives join or just people who really hate Kevin O'Leary or Kelly Leach, join the Conservative Party to do an anyone-but kind of campaign. Should our friends all join the Conservative Party, Scott? 
Uh, well, a couple of my friends already have joined the Conservative Party, even though they have never joined parties before or aren't typically the sort of people who vote Conservative. So in terms of what's actually happening, I think that's definitely is the case. I've I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but, you know, I actually had a couple friends reach out to me who knew I was a little more interested in politics than the rest of their social circle and kind of wanted to join to know how to stop the Kelly Leeches and the Kevin O'Leary's. This is a very much a relevant question, I think, and this leadership race, I think, more than most, has really drawn that out. And I think we maybe have Donald Trump to thank for part of it. The fact that elections have consequences has, I think, really been driven home recently. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is really a good idea to get involved. Uh, obviously, if you support the general principles of a party, it's a good idea to do so. And you know, when you join up with the Conservative Party, they have a do you support the principles of the party, which is so broad that basically I think you could count 95% of Canadians in that support. Unless you really want to seize the means of production, and so much so that the support for private property provision in there, you're going to run afoul of, it's pretty hard to be offside of it. It's so broad. Well, and it's not like they're going to come to your house and like hold up the Conservative Party pledge and go through your Facebook statuses and check. If you pay the $15, you have a Conservative Party membership. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like, in terms of the what the Conservative Party asks of its members joining, I think most Canadians would fall into that. Now, I think there's a good argument that the essence of the Conservative Party it maybe isn't quite that broad. But at the same time, I think there, that was a deliberate choice on that party's part to aim for you know, a broadest swath of Canadians possible, where they aren't so far offside that, you know, they test the very being of the Conservatives. And, you know, obviously, if you're dislike the conservatives that much this probably isn't the way you want to target your uh political activities but you know if you're a little more sympathetic to or at least i'd say could see yourself potentially voting for one of the candidates not that you think you are going to vote in the upcoming election but you know could see yourself potentially voting for them it's it's still worthwhile joining to support them even if it's a five percent chance you'll vote for them as long as they're not in the, I'm never going to vote for this person, I just want to tweet what's on the opposite side of the ballot. For me, I, I, I think that's a fairly reasonable thing to do, especially like us. We live in a safe riding. The last time this riding went anything other than liberal was before I was born. It's, it is very much a safe riding. My vote doesn't have a huge amount of impact here, and well, neither does yours, but... If history is any indication, whoever wins this leadership race, or possibly the person who wins the one after, is going to be Prime Minister of Canada. So this is a decision that actually impacts all Canadians, and not just those who are conservative or conservative-friendly. I think the other reason, and this is a point that's been kind of driven home, I think, recently, is that there are some candidates who get involved in politics who I think are manifestly unfit for the office they're seeking. Um, some of them, like south of the border, have actually gotten into that office, and it's important that the same thing doesn't happen here. And in the case of someone like Kevin O'Leary, who is, I would argue, just very much unfit for the office he's seeking, 
you know, maybe if he spent 10 years in parliament and, you know, really learned the ropes and how government works, that'd be another story. But as he is right now, that man has no business being anywhere near the PMO. And in that case, I think there's maybe a little more flexibility. And this is definitely a judgment call on whether or not one should join a party to stop someone who's likely to win, or at least has a very good shot at winning, but, you know, could wreak havoc beyond just instituting policies one disagrees with, but actually horribly screw up the job, that's very critical. It's largely a strategic voting argument you're making. Like, if you get involved in this race, you can block the people and maybe support someone you're sympathetic to in some way. And there's just this part of me, I think, that recoils from strategic voting because it's just not what the ideal of democracy is about. And obviously, ideals get thrown out of the window when you have Trumps and O'Leary's. But at the very core, it all just comes back to me of where do your individual values sit? And for me, I'm never going to vote for the Conservative Party of Canada. And so even though I would prefer living in a country led by Michael Chong than by any of these other candidates, I still want to move towards better options. And so joining the Conservative Party to vote for it on a personal level is dishonest because I don't support them. But on a broader level, sort of lends my $15 essentially to their cause. So when they can start talking about we have this many members and this many people voted, those will be big numbers that they can play up. And at the end of the day, it also comes down to this sort of will one vote make a difference? Maybe in some of these writings, obviously it does play a bigger role, but even if that does work and even if Chong wins, he's still got almost all of these other people still in caucus, some of whom I strongly object to. And it's not like the Conservative Party is moving in a good direction. Maybe if all these people join and get are legitimately supportive of the sort of center-right going to a progressive conservative red Tory style. But the fact is the Manning Conference that we're seeing this weekend is looking at how much can it double down on Trumpism almost to the shock of the Canadian media and rebel media is kind of steering the boat. And there's a way to push back on that. But at some point you just kind of have to go, well, that's a lost cause. And where can one better direct their activism and their resistance it's sort of like saying, if you're a Republican, well, I'm going to keep supporting John McCain because he's at least the sort of establishment and he never really supported Trump, except John McCain keeps fucking voting with Trump and the establishment isn't pushing back and the establishment's collapsed. So it's almost too late, maybe, in another argument. And those are the kind of places I come down on it and I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, at least at this stage. And it is moving in a worrying direction, but I see that as all the more reason to get involved. Because I think we're far from the point of no return on this. And, you know, we have an active leadership race here. There, there are several candidates who do want to kind of not go down that path and you know, we've talked about Michael Chong quite a bit in particular, because I think he's very much been the standard bearer for moving towards a more center-center-right position than often to this other rebel media direction. 
So the, there is a, a chance here to actually have quite a bit of influence. And some of these writings are fairly sparse in terms of their membership list. They actually have some of them less than a th- uh, 100 members. So in some cases, in theory, you're a vote there would actually be worth more than a full point on the overall vote total. And yeah, there are definitely strategic considerations here, but I think that's also just, we have to play the hand we're dealt. And it's not that I like the fact that this system is so terrible that my vote more or less doesn't matter in uh, our riding here. And, you know, ideally we would have been going for electoral reform. We Both of us wanted to see that happen and it hasn't, but... You don't always get to choose the battlefield, and right now, within the given constraints of the system, this is, I think, arguably the point where it's easiest to apply pressure to at the moment. And once the leadership race is done, you know, 2019's coming up, I think there's a stronger argument to be made that, yeah, trying to influence the policy direction of one particular party maybe isn't the best thing to do in that case political efforts so much more should be focused kind of on the general election and not steering things one way or the other. But right now, in terms of the, in the next couple months, what choices can actually be made that have the biggest impact going forward, the leader of the Conservative Party, I think, is that biggest choice right now. They effectively control one side of the, where one side of the Overton window is. How the opposition party responds sets a lot of the tone of politics in the nation. And all of these impacts affect the whole country, not just conservative party members. And there isn't an obvious other spot to have that sort of influence at this moment. I definitely agree. It's a fantastic time to be getting involved in partisan politics. I think there's way too much negativity around being partisan because we live in a system that revolves around political parties. They are where the power resides in this country. For progressives, I think, though, the opportunity to rebuild the NDP towards a sort of pragmatic populism of Jack Layton and that kind of compassionate social justice frame, but also economically a bit smarter than some of the wild ideas of the past that can appeal to a broad range of Canadians. It wasn't so long ago we were talking about the almost Prime Minister Tom Mulcair. And with that leadership race coming up, I think there's a chance to effectively switch the conversation from, well, do we go farther right to the Conservatives, or do we just let the Liberals be the good guys of the world? And we could say, well, but we could be better than that. We can actually put forward a progressive vision and... Even with Chong, you're getting, here's the liberals with the brakes on. And to be fair to Michael Chong, he does have a more ambitious climate plan than the current liberal targets. But with the NDP, you do have the opportunity to sort of say, all right, here's here's a path forward. That's where my sort of focus is. I haven't decided if there's a candidate I like yet. There's only two almost in the race. So that's still coming up. But I think even if you're a bit more centrist, the liberals are going to start thinking about what have they accomplished in the last couple of years and how do they want to take that forward to the next election. So if you wanted to have a strong say in the liberal party right now, if you're pissed about electoral reform or if you wanted to see something else, now's the time at the riding association, you might actually get your voice heard. Getting involved during the election campaign is actually one of the last chances you get. You don't make a big change in policy then. You can affect who's elected 
and definitely go door knock for a campaign at least once in your life because it's a good way to see what the campaigns are like on the ground. But now is the time to pick your side almost and try to champion. And at least in two of the parties, you can champion a vision. Yeah, I do think there's a, a role for kind of, you know, that's the direction you want to go, you know, kind of champion that sort of stuff too. But at the same time, I think there's also quite a bit of value in kind of setting out where one edge of the conversation is going to be. And I would much rather the what we're talking about in politics be, okay, how do we address climate change? Not, is this an argument worth having at all? And I think a lot more gets done when we're focused on what are the solutions, not is this a problem? When the issues around around minority rights become what's the solution and not is this a problem? And, you know, that's what I, I liked when I saw Michael Johnson's response to M103. It was, it was a much more of a how do we go forward on this? Let's discuss solutions than a let's fight about whether or not this is even a conversation worth having. And I think overall, we get a lot more productive on some of those important issues if that was where the discussion was happening. And I'm not sure the national conversation gets improved significantly if the side that's already championing one side just gets a little more louder. I think there's a lot of benefit to be gained by kind of shifting the Overton window a bit on some of these issues. Especially if you're kind of more in the centrist mold. You know, we clearly have enough gap between us politically that we don't entirely see eye to eye on the overall direction we should be going. Although there's still a fair bit of overlap. And, you know, that's fair that, you know, you're far enough outside the service that you're not going to be joining them. But I think for some of our more centrist listeners, it's if you're looking for where to put your efforts, the liberals aren't likely to be changed anytime soon. They have a fairly popular leader who content doing what he wants to do and they're not likely to be moving one way or the other on any issues unless there's a huge groundswell on something and that doesn't seem to be happening. So in that case then it becomes more where's the most productive thing happening and I at least right now I perceive the biggest detriments to having an effective national dialogue on a whole bunch of these issues is kind of your more extreme right of center voices, at least extreme within the current political climate. And with them being kind of the biggest detriment, the most useful it can be is to try and shift that conversation and get a leader of the opposition who much more wants to focus on how do we solve these problems? How do we deal with climate change? How do we deal with that? And hey, from a pure strategic calculus perspective, you really want to game out the next election. Having a not horrible conservative party might actually help the NDP because the liberals can't play their uh, scare everyone into who would normally vote for the NDP into vote for liberals. But that is pure political chess not and probably not about the bigger principle here on whether or not you should uh, get involved with a party that doesn't entirely match up with where you are, but where there's maybe some merits in joining. I think wherever you end up on whether or not joining the conservatives is the right choice for you personally. And I can definitely understand that among many of our listeners, there are probably going to be people who 
are far enough away from the conservatives that they're you know can never see themselves voting for them or and there's that big a gap they don't want to join i think it is important to get involved wherever you end up on this particular question and you know if you want to help the ndp or the greens or whoever i think or a non-profit activist group or whatever yeah. even outside of politics yeah it's definitely helpful to get involved i tend to see the votes as kind of the biggest drivers and ultimately you get politicians to change by threatening their job so voting really is where i think it matters the most and while i see protesting as a fine way to express your dissatisfaction or something i think ultimately it comes down to votes and if you're not going to vote in this leadership race vote in the other one or work on get out the vote efforts in the general but just you know Get involved, I think, is our overall message on this one. And if you're thinking about uh, getting involved in this one, just a couple of the important deadlines to make note of. The membership deadline is March 28th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. If you join after that, you can't vote. May 27th is when the results are going to be announced. It's a mail-in ballot, so you're going to have to get uh, your ballot in ahead of time. If your ballot's not received by then, it's not going to count. It's so when you do get the ballot, mail it in fairly soon. Their ballots are going to be going out, I believe, in April. So it gives about a month's time to decide who, how you're going to rank your candidates. Uh, you can only rank up to 10 on the ballot. So as much as you may really want to express your displeasure by putting a 14 next to O'Leary's name, if you really don't like him, you know, you need to leave him off, not put them at number 14, because you can only put up to 10 people on the ballot. Yeah, and that's the basic structure of the vote. We will link to the Conservative Party leadership race information page and all their rules, deadlines, and all this information will be available online. And that has been Politico's deep dive into the Conservative leadership race. Find lists of the candidates' web pages and the other information we've discussed in this episode in the show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitoSpot. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. If you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.